Hey, Airbnb hosts, Natalie here. You already hear me every Wednesday on No Vacancy, the podcast, but I've decided to add a bonus episode at the last Friday of every month called Airbnb Advice Column. Every month, I'll ask you to submit your questions, pick three to five that I think most of you could benefit from, and those will go in here. So sit back, enjoy this monthly bonus episode, and thank you for writing in your questions to Airbnb Advice Column. XOXO, Natalie. Hey, host, you know that brand new couch that you just bought for your listing? Oh, and the bed and the mattress and all your high quality linens and that whole outdoor furniture set. Did you know that you could have saved up to 40, 50 or even 60% on those? There's no catch and there's no cost. All there is is Minoan. As a host, you can sign up to Minoan's group pricing option for free and start shopping from over 200 of your favorite home furnishing brands. It's as easy as instead of adding to cart on the brand's website, add it to cart via the Minoan Chrome extension and watch the discounts start adding up. We all know that design and quality are essential for standing out as hosts in today's market, and nothing makes that easier than shopping via Minoan. I don't have to sacrifice quality for price with Minoan. I get the best products at the best pricing. Find the link in my show notes to get started and never pay full price again. Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Airbnb Advice Column. Today, our first question comes from Denise, who said, Ours will be a three-season rental. What is the best way to block off winter months without losing search placement and super host progress when we reopen? Should we just block off months or snooze? Thanks. All right, so Denise, here's what I'll say. If this is a seasonal market where everybody is down for winter then you really don't have anything to worry about because even if your listing loses some traction by being slower in the winter season, so is all of your competition. They're all going to be affected by the same thing. So when spring happens and your whole market is reopening, you're all going to be in the same place. So if this is a market dictated thing, don't worry about it. If this is a personal thing where your market is still thriving in winter, but you might be traveling or you're going to have family there or you're blocking it for like a three-month insurance stay and that's where your concern comes from that you're going to be the only one who doesn't have consistent rentals during that time here's what i would do in that case if i was in a market where people are booking a year in advance nine months in advance take like a michigan lake house people are planning their michigan lake vacations literally a year in advance already next summer is booked this summer so if I was in a market like that, I would not snooze the listing, even if I'm not hosting over winter. I would just block the winter dates where I'm not hosting, but leave everything else open because I could still be getting bookings, even if it's technically slow season for me. So if I'm in a market like that, that's what I would do. But in a market where people are booking more last minute or closer to the check-in date, then you definitely could snooze it. If people would be booking your place throughout the winter and you know that you are completely unavailable over winter, you definitely could snooze the listing until spring and then reopen. And it's not like you're really missing out on spring bookings because, like I said, if this, if this is a market where people are booking closer to the check-in date, then as soon as you reopen in spring, you'll start getting those spring bookings. So that is kind of the option if you're in a market like that. Personally, though, this is something that I think is overblown. I've seen in a lot of Facebook groups this debate going on and people say that blocking dates hurts you in the algorithm. Snoozing your listing is better because then you reopen it when you're officially ready to launch again. As an Airbnb ambassador, 
I've never heard any truth to this from anybody officially at Airbnb. I've tested this myself. We've had renovations on certain projects and I've had certain owners ask me to snooze their listing in the meantime. I've had others say, just block off the two months where we're renovating. I've tried both. I've never noticed any difference between unsnoozing or reopening dates. I've never noticed that one listing did worse in the algorithm after that one dropped off in rankings. I think this is something kind of overblown. Again, I've seen this talked about in Facebooks. I've seen the debate back and forth. Me personally, my background as an Airbnb ambassador, I've been on many huddles, many calls with higher ups at Airbnb. I've never really heard anyone talking about this. The snooze feature is great. It gives you a lot of peace of mind if you really cannot host anybody and you don't want something to glitch and accidentally open up. Or if you have that rolling feature where dates just automatically open three, six, nine months in advance, a snooze is just going to shut down all activity. But I don't really think it's bad to just block dates because people could still find your listing. And even if it's not available now, they could wishlist it. They could save it for the future, especially for us, because I host 10 different condos in the same exact complex. If one is down, but that one gets found and people are trying to book and say like, hey, when will dates reopen on this one? We'd like to book this, but I see it's closed. If that were to happen, I could very easily redirect them to another one and say, yeah, this one's under construction. So dates are blocked, but you can feel free to book this one instead. So I personally prefer not to snooze. And like I said, I've A-B tested this with different units during construction times or when family is coming and the owners ask me to block it. And I've never noticed that when we relaunch into the search, you know, into, into being searchable, I've never noticed a certain dip or boost in the algorithm either way. Next up, we have Uzma who asked, leave it or charge for it? Stained towel, broken glass, ripped bed sheet, etc. Okay. I have seen a lot of hosts say that their general rule of thumb out there is anything under $50, leave it be. If the damage was 50 bucks or less, cost $50 to either replace it or fix it, let it be, don't ask the guests. Here is my take on this. For me, what matters more is intention behind it. And I've given this example before. But let's say that my cleaners walk in and find the bed sheets are stained. Let's go with two scenarios. The same, the same exact set of bed sheets cost the same amount in this example, found in the same bed, okay? But in example A, those bed sheets are stained with blood. And example B, the bed sheets are stained with red wine. Technically, I have to replace them either way. Can't get the stain out. I have to replace it either way. Do I charge the guests or not? Hosts who are going with the $50 or less model would say, no, for a stained bed sheet, it's probably going to be less than 50 bucks to replace. Don't bother them. My thought on this, if it's blood, I would not charge for it. My assumption there is somebody started their period in the middle of the night. I don't think there's any reason to reach out to the guest and embarrass them. This feels like an accident. I don't think I need to call attention to it. Example B, if it was red wine, I would charge for it. Because to me, that feels like negligence. That feels like, why did you bring red wine into bed with you and then spill it? Come on, drink that in the living room, in the in the dining room, at the bar, at the bar stools, in the kitchen. Why did you bring that into bed with you? You're just being sloppy. Would you do that in your own bed? Probably not. So that is where I come down. I like to see intention behind it. Of course, there's no way to 100% tell the intention behind damage. A broken wine glass. Could the guests have just picked up a wine glass and thrown it against the wall for no reason? I guess. 
Would I have any way of knowing that? No, I would assume that it just accidentally broke. So in the case of one broken wine glass, I'm not going to charge them. Honestly, if there's two broken wine glasses, I probably would. Even though it's still less than 50 bucks, I'd be like, come on, really? You broke two? Like after the first one, weren't you going to be a little bit more careful? You broke two? I also like charging this way for higher priced offenses too. So for example, I've had guests break our Keurig before. And this is another topic I could go off on this too, but I am so team drip coffee maker over Keurig. In every listing that has a drip coffee maker, we have never had to replace the coffee maker in four plus years of hosting. In every property I manage that has a Keurig, we are replacing those basically twice a year. Keurigs are so shitty. I don't know why people rave about them. That's a whole separate side note. But with the properties that have Keurigs, I literally expect them, we, we replace them twice a year. And anytime I get that text from the guest, like, hey, the Keurig is broken, if I'm going by this $50 cheaper rule to decide when I charge or not, in those cases, the Keurig is like 80 bucks, I think, we should be charging them, right? If the host that use this model of like 50 bucks or less, I don't charge anything over we do, we should be charging them for breaking a Keurig that's 80 bucks. But I know that they did it on accident. I know they probably didn't even break it. I know it was just time because the Keurigs are so flaky, I swear. So I don't want to charge for that. We just eat the cost and we replace it. And I encourage those owners to switch to a drip coffee maker, but some of them are stubborn with me and still insist on Keurig. So that's why I like this method more. I think that in the hospitality business, just assigning a number value, I just think it's too generic. I think this is a people business, this is a people industry, and I just like to meet people where they're at. And if I feel like you were just being negligent, sloppy, disrespectful, not paying attention to things, then that's where I'm going to charge you, regardless of the number amount. On the flip side, if I feel like you were a really caring guest and as soon as the Keurig or whatever it was busted and broke and you sent me pictures and told me, I don't care how much it is, I'm not going to charge you. I feel like accidents happen and if you were forthright with me, I will give you that same respect and acknowledge that accidents happen. It could have been our part. It could have been due for a replacement already and you just happen to be the last person to encounter that item, whatever it was. Betty asked, where is the best place to buy a geodesic dome? Okay, I hate to be the mood killer here. I would seriously reconsider owning a dome. I know a handful of people who have invested in domes and every single one of them has regretted it. I know they are so cool, but the roof alone quick Google search has told me that in the lifetime of owning a geodesic dome, expect to spend between $700 to $800 per square foot on your roof. What? That is wild. That is insane. The roof costs on a dome are astronomical. And I just jumped on Reddit for help with this question. I know, I know Reddit is not the most reliable source, but can I just read you what some dome owners have said on this reddit thread somebody the question was what is a reasonable price on a dome home roof replacement and somebody replied reasonable price and dome do not belong in the same sentence next person said honestly i think you are looking at at least 30k just for the roof somebody said we've done a few of these and with skylights it is easily forty thousand dollars 
Somebody said, I know nothing about roofs in general, but when home shopping in Oregon, I was told to stay as far away from geodesic domes as possible as the roof replacement here is in the thirty to $40,000 range. Somebody said, that's exactly what I was going to say. Do not expect to, pen a, to spend a penny less than $30,000. Someone else said, any quote that you get for a regular roof, three times it so that you can estimate what it will cost for a dome roof. And somebody else said, take the square footage and add 200% of what an average price for a roof is in your market. So my personal take... I would not do a dome and I hate to be that person who's like crushing your dreams. If you've ran the numbers and it's checking out, go for it. I just really think if you're if you're doing this because you want to be ahead of this unique stays category and really take advantage of how Airbnb is promoting unique stays right now and creative spaces, I think there are so many other creative things you can come up with that are way cheaper than a dome. I just don't know if domes have the same ROI with how much goes into roof repair. Like I said, I only know a handful of people who have invested in domes, every single one of them. Anecdotal evidence, of course, but every single one of them has told me they regret it. If they could go back, they would not have bought the dome house. Just had to get that off my chest. If you really are insistent on investing in a dome, your question was best place to buy one. What I would do is buy, if you are gonna buy a dome, buy one that has plenty of land around it to where you could land hack it into something else if need be. If you have to shut down the dome for three months because it needs a roof repair, which I just really feel is going to be inevitable at some point from everyone I've talked to, if you do have to shut down for a time, if you have enough land space to where you have glamp sites or yurts or something else on there, you'd be able to at least be generating some income while repairing the dome. And if you want to check out more info on land hacking, go back and listen to episode 69 with Zoe Burkhoff. Shauna asked, what is the lowest nightly rate you would go to get more bookings? For context, eight guests, three bed, two bath. Okay, Shauna, I cannot answer this for you, even though you gave me the occupancy numbers and bedrooms and bathrooms. I don't know what market you're in, if you are targeting luxury clientele, if you are in a crime-ridden urban neighborhood. These are going to be very different answers. But here are two things to consider when you are determining what is the lowest nightly rate you should go. For one, add up all of your expenses, what it costs to host a reservation. Add up the utilities you're spending. I would not include something like Wi-Fi where you're paying that every single month regardless. For us, our city, we pay water every single month regardless of usage. That's just how it's how it's set up. So I wouldn't include something like water. I would just try to figure out exactly what is your per reservation cost, the costs that are only associated with hosting somebody. So putting out toilet paper, shampoo, how much of that gets used, dish pods, trash bags, all of that, gas, AC, electrical, figure out the exact amount that it costs you to host a reservation. And I would even include here charging for your hourly time. So if you estimate that Let's say for each reservation, you spend about 30 minutes. Let's just say like between coordinating that they got the right check-in instructions, answering any questions if they have them. I think 30 minutes is kind of high, but let's just say, you know, maybe even go an hour just to be safe in case it's a really needy guest that has a lot of questions. Let's say that you assume each reservation takes an hour of your time. What is your hourly rate? 40 bucks an hour, 50 bucks an hour. So figure that out and whatever that adds up to, add like, 25% on top of that just for general wear and tear of the property. And that is the lowest, lowest, lowest I would ever go. That is the absolute lowest I would ever go. 
but that is not enough. So that is just going to make sure that you're not losing money on the actual reservation, that number. The other piece to consider here is what amount starts to invite bad guests. For us, we have found anything under $100 starts to invite bad guests. Technically, if I just followed step one, I just told you of calculating the lowest amount we could go without losing money. Technically, if I just go off of that, we could be hosting for probably 60 or 70 bucks a night. It's pretty inexpensive for us to host. It's a smaller floor plan, only 800 square feet. And yeah, we could we could definitely host for 60, 70 bucks a night without actively losing money. But I have noticed anytime we go below 100 bucks a night, even just down to 95, that is when we start to get worse guests. More needy guests who are more demanding, leave worse reviews, leave it dirtier, leave it messier. That's just what we found. So 100, we never, ever, ever, I would rather leave it vacant than rent it for 100 bucks. For you, that might be a different calculation. If you are somebody who, you know, you have to make the money back right now or something, or you have a higher interest rate, your monthly payments are higher, whatever it might be. If you're in a position where you have to make the money right now, you might think, hey, it is worthwhile for me to deal with the riffraff and not so great guests. I'm just going to go down to that lowest amount to where I'm not actively losing money. But I would encourage you to play around with this and test it a little bit. Go lower. I really would say go lower than you think. We used to think that below 120 bucks is where we would have bad guests. And I found I can comfortably go down to 100 in off-season, midweek off-season, and we are totally fine. So 100 is our limit. Anytime I go into double digits, that's where we start to get bad guests. So play around with it. It might be lower than you think, but just make sure you know that baseline of the amount you should never, ever, ever go below because that's when you are actually losing money. Amanda said, what to do if your co-hosting client doesn't want to upgrade furniture that you think they need? Oh, this is a question I've had to learn the hard way. And the answer is to drop them. You cannot change an owner's personality. You can't. You can try to convince them of all the different ways that their ROI will improve. It's very, very hard. It's very, very hard to change somebody who just doesn't see the value in investing, especially in design. There are just owners who will never be on board to that. And I mean, okay, maybe I'm being dramatic. Maybe you don't need to drop them. If the amount that they're bringing in currently you still feel is worth your while, you just feel like they could make more with a better design. If you still feel like it's worth your while, then fine. Keep it as is. Know that you are not going to change that owner's mind. You're not. I've learned this the hard way. You're not going to change their mind. I actually now preach and teach this in my coaching program. It is more important to find the right owner than it is the right property. The right owner will always be willing to work with you to improve their property. The wrong property can be improved with the right owner, but the wrong owner doesn't matter what a gem their property is. They are constantly going to either micromanage you or be the opposite extreme where they're completely detached and make it impossible to run the business. If they don't value the same things you do, in hosting, in delivering an experience, you're not going to be able to change your mind. You're just not. It doesn't matter how great that property is. If it's in the hands of the wrong owner, it's going to be a bust. So again, if you're if you're making enough money now to where it's still worth your while, I guess keep it, but you're not going to change your mind. You're not. <laughs> hate to break it to you. In the future, when you are looking for future co-hosting clients, look more for the owner than the property. It will help you so much. Most co-hosts quit because they are burnt out on owners, not by guests. 
owners are more difficult to manage than guests. And every single person I know who's a co-host who has quit did not quit because of how guests were. They quit because of how owners were. So this is not a unique experience at all. This is a very difficult part to manage. You are dealing with people who have invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in a property. They are going to be very particular about how it's ran. This is the most difficult part of co-hosting. So again, hate to break it to you. Hate to be the bearer of bad news. You're not going to change your mind. I mean, maybe, but it's so unlikely. I'm just, I, I've just seen it time and time again. Owners who are stubborn about this, it's very hard to compel them on on the value of design. If this is a new co-hosting client, I think it's worth showing them a breakdown of numbers in your market and saying, hey, this is how these well-designed properties are doing. This is how the poorly designed ones are doing. Would you be interested in investing more money before we list it to get it to this higher tier? Before you've signed them, if you're having that conversation, that's great and that's totally worthwhile. But if you've been co-hosting with them for like a year already and they don't see the value in it, it's not going to happen. And our last question today comes from Omar, who said, how to manage requests that are set to a waiting ID and lock your calendar for 12 hours? Omar, buddy, it's actually 24 hours. Have you not noticed it's actually 24 hours? So, so, so insane. Okay, for context, for anybody who doesn't understand what this question is about, Airbnb has this stupid feature who I like if I ever became CEO of Airbnb or had any sort of authority or power there, this is the very first thing that I would do away with. They have this absolutely stupid feature where somebody can book your home, but if their ID has not been verified or they haven't uploaded an ID yet and the booking cannot be confirmed, instead of just putting it back out there and saying like, hey, guest, your reservation is not confirmed yet. You still have to verify your ID. No, instead, what they'll do is hold the date for the guest and just say, we'll hold it for 24 hours until you upload your ID and get that process sorted out. So annoying. I don't know why they do this. And the problem is this always happens to me. If this is if somebody's trying to book something like three months out in advance and this happens, it's annoying but fine, if you're going to block the calendar for 24 hours, three months in advance, it's not the end of the world. It always happens when somebody is trying to check in the next day. I will have an unbooked weekend and Thursday evening, one of these rolls around and blocks my calendar for all of Friday day. So nobody can book that thing last minute. So I hate this policy. I really, really hate that Airbnb does this. They should just let the guests know like, hey, your booking's not confirmed and the dates are not held for you until you figure this out hate that they do this, but we have to play with their system. If it comes through Airbnb, you got to deal with their system. This is what I do. So typically, this only happens with brand new users of Airbnb. Anybody who's had a few bookings will probably have had their ID verified in that time. This is typically only people who it's their first time. They probably just created their Airbnb account 20 minutes before they started searching and sent an inquiry. And that's why Airbnb is blocking this and they want to verify their ID before they can continue. So what I do here is I try to use the fact that they are brand new to Airbnb. I try to use that to my advantage and I will message them and say, hey, just so you know, your booking is not confirmed right now. Airbnb is still verifying your ID. As a courtesy, we will hold this date for you for one hour, but you need to verify your ID in that time. And that usually, even though this is completely false, they technically have 24 hours, 
Like I said, I am playing to the fact that they are brand new to the Airbnb and they don't know. So I give them a one hour timeline. And if they ghost me and don't listen and don't respond or anything, I will call Airbnb. I will call them and be like, hey, you need to call this guest. Their ID isn't verified. You need to help me get a hold of them. I will call Airbnb and they've actually done that for me before where they've reached out and been able to speed it up a little bit. But in most cases, as soon as I send that, the guest will respond and be like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And this is why this just bugs me so much from Airbnb because I've seen so many guests say, like, I had no idea that it wasn't even verified. I thought I followed all the instructions. Like, thank you for telling me I'm not confirmed yet. What do I need to do? And then I'll tell them, you know, just upload a picture of your ID. And as soon as Airbnb verifies it, we'll be good to go. And usually if the guest responds to me and they're quick acting on this and I know they're working on it, then I kind of drop this one hour deadline. Again, that one hour deadline isn't even enforceable. Airbnb actually gives them 24 hours, but I'm just playing to the fact that they are new to Airbnb and don't know. So I'm trying to give them some urgency. And, you know, if it takes past an hour, I'm not going to call Airbnb to cancel their reservation or anything. Like if I know they're working on it, we're good. We're a team. We're working on this together. We'll get it resolved in the next 24 hours. But it's the ones who ghost me and don't reply to that. That is when I'm calling Airbnb and I'm like, hey, call this person. Why isn't their ID verified? Call them. And you can't call them yet because if it's not a confirmed booking, you won't have their phone number. So that's why I have to get Airbnb involved. And I will bug the crap out of Airbnb. I will call them five times and be like, hey, they're not verified yet. Call them. Have you called them? Have you called them? Hey, have you reached out to this guest? They can't book. Their ID isn't verified. Call them. So I am just really annoying. And Usually in every case, they will end up responding. <laughs> the guest will end up responding either like, hey, so sorry, you know, we had no idea working on it now. Or I've had people respond and be like, oh, sorry, I don't have an ID. Like, I can't verify an ID. And then they will withdraw the request. If that happens, I'll just say, can you kindly withdraw the request? So that's how I handle it. And yeah, I just I just fake that one hour deadline just to drive some urgency. And then I go from there. A little sneaky, but whatever. They don't know any better. Use that to your advantage. 